Hello and welcome back. Today I'm interviewing, I think, one of the most interesting writers and thinkers on the centre-right in Britain, Mark Sidwell. Mark, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much, Douglas. It's a pleasure. Do any of the people watching this, I certainly do, ever get the feeling that it doesn't matter how you vote, it doesn't matter who you vote for, the same sort of people end up in charge. The, the same sort of people with the same outlook, the same agenda, the same woke ideology. Um, Mark's actually come up with a very interesting book to explain why this is. Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about your book, The Long March? And, and how does it explain why it doesn't matter who we vote for, we end up with the same leftist nonsense? Sure, thank you, Douglas. Well, the, the book is really written to explain a, a sort of puzzle which um, I noticed, and I think a lot of other people noticed as well, which was around the time that Boris Johnson won the last election. This was a stonking majority, the 80 seat majority, potential for the Conservative Party to be in power for, for maybe a decade, really unopposed. But at the same time, there were a lot of people who were rather downbeat at the heart of, and not the opposition, at the, at the heart of a conservative thought and, and strategy. And they were worried because they thought that although they had that much political power, they didn't have any cultural power, that the, that the sort of the institutional culture of the country was really owned uh, by leftist ideas and that therefore they weren't going to be able to get uh, very much done. And that, that certainly seems to have been the case. You know, Boris Johnson often seems to be on the back foot. His government, though it has this majority, is... Uh, uh, you know, not being able to go or, or worried about going on certain news programs. And indeed, we've seen Boris himself, who you know, in theory is something of a civil libertarian, um, not only issues around the lockdown, which of course is a, is a whole story in itself, but, but things like turning into a nanny stater on, on getting the government to, to slim us all down and things like that. Real, and, and, and taking up digital identity cards, real changes in surprising directions, leftward directions, directions of sort of government control, uh, where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. So it was, it was trying to understand what was going on there. And, and what I, I looked at was the history of, of a concept called the Long March Through the Institutions. And this, this came about um, in sort of interwar period initially, and, and then later in the, in the sort of um, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and it's an idea from the, the revolutionary left but the, the non-violent revolutionary left that was looking for a way to take over in the West. They weren't succeeding directly with, with communist revolution. Stalinist oppression was looking very unpleasant in, in Soviet Russia. And they were looking for, for different ways to think about it. Uh, and there's an idea that came from uh, an Italian communist, Antonio Gramsci. And, and although, again, you know, they lost the Cold War, his ideas are, are extremely influential today. Uh, in cultural uh, thinking across universities and, and in the ways many sort of leftists have been engaging. And what he thought about was this idea that cultural control uh, actually um, determines what's going on politically. That, that he thought that you couldn't break capitalism if all the institutions around it, churches and the media and publishing and bureaucracies were full of people who thought it was a good idea and, and in some way legitimized it. Uh, so, and his, his ideas got taken up in, in the late 60s by uh, a German called Rudi Deutscher, who said, well, let's, let's have that kind of revolution, a quiet revolution, where we march through the, the institutions and take them over for our ideas. So as, as conservatives, we've spent all this time worrying about winning elections. And if I look back over the past 50 years, you know, there's been a, a, a conservative government in office for 
most of that, that, that time. We've been worrying about elections, we've been worrying about the economy, we've been worrying about making arguments over how to manage the economy. But you're saying that all that time, the really cunning strategy on the left, put forward by this guy Gramsci, is actually to, to change the way people think rather than how they vote. And, and because of this, with, they've been able to do things. They, they know they're never going to be able to get a, a mandate for some of the stuff they want to do, but because they control the, the cultural institutions, the, the, the universities, the, the schools, the classrooms, the BBC, that's how they've been able to get away with imposing this, this agenda. It's, um, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Absolutely, yes. And it, it, well, I mean, I, I would say too, it, that could sound quite conspiratorial and, and you know, on the, on the fringes, there are some ways of thinking about that that are all about certain people, you know, cunningly planning it all. And I'm really not talking about it. It's undoubtedly true. And, you know, I, I look at examples in my books of active campaigns of subversion, people who tried to do things like take over the North London uh, Polytechnic in the 70s. That's very well documented. People of, of a certain temperament taking over. I mean, Tony Blair, who we think of as very sort of moderate, someone who had taken on board all these free market arguments in some ways about how capitalism made people rich and people should be allowed to get rich. Um, but he did an enormous amount to give institutional control to left-influenced thinkers, really, uh, across civil society. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very big campaign. It was very actively done. Um, and it's not that all of those people necessarily were thinking, oh, this is, this is great, this is, this is what we're going to do. But it just, when they're all in those institutions, they become very monolithic in how they think. And there's, an, there's a concept I talk about called the, the blob, uh, and it, this comes from um, a science fiction movie of a sort of monster that assimilates everything that it, it, it touches. Um, and it's very hard to find because it doesn't have a, a face or anything. But, but and we, um, we, we, we know the blob is yeah, well, like that. We, we know the blob is, is, is real, it exists. Look at the difficulty that Michael yeah. Gove had in changing the education system so that you could have merit-based teaching and you know some what you might call academic rigor in the classroom we know that the blob existed in the upper echelons of the british civil service look at the problems that we had once we had voted to leave the european union in actually getting british officials to negotiate effectively on our behalf it was almost as if the eu was on both sides of the table and quite often I hear people, when they talk about left-wing culture, they, they think about the BBC. And, and you know, they think about um, you know, attempts by the BBC, for example, to have Euro flags at last night of the province. We are quite often, I think, um, aware of the leftist agenda when the BBC commissions, not just current affairs programmes, but entertainment programmes. There's always a, 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 a politically correct intersectional message in, in the most anodyne detective drama now but what people don't i think realize is that for four or five hours every day your kid is exposed to that sort of left-wing outlook in the classroom it's not really the bbc which we can switch off we should be worried about it's what's happening in the education system it's quite a profound problem that we're up against isn't it there's no it's, it's not just a question of expecting the minister in the Department of Education to flick a switch. This is a, a deep-seated, ingrained, fundamentally leftist, anti-individualist, anti-free market, anti-Western agenda that is now deeply ingrained in the culture and the education institutions of the country. 
Absolutely, and, and you're right about flicking a switch. I mean, one of the problems with this sort of institutional control is it, it takes quite a long time to build up and, and, and establish itself, but it's outside political uh, power, so it's very, very hard to get rid of. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it takes an extremely long time in the same way as it did to arrive, but once it's rooted, it's very difficult. It's not like you, you just vote someone out. I mean, the government has recently started pushing back from um, the Department of Education. It's sent out messages saying, um, you know, that you can't use anti-capitalist materials in schools and, and pushing back on some of the, the sex education stuff. But of course, it's very difficult if, um, you know, those ideas are broadly accepted by, by the people who are teaching. Um, and, and we know at least that certainly that the, the number of people in the, in the state schools voting conservative as teachers is, is tiny and certainly willing to admit to it. Before, um, before we get on to talk about what we can actually do about it, and I, it's a subject that I've been thinking about for some sort of 20 years, um, yeah. and I'd be really interested in hearing what you think some of the remedies are. Before we get on to that, I just want to talk, Boris Johnson, his government announced, or at least they made it clear to various newspapers that they were going to deal with this and there was talk about you know for example Charles Moore being made chairman of the BBC now I'm not sure if anyone actually ran that past Charles Moore because it, it seems that he, he wasn't available but we, we make this great big song and dance about the occasional centre-right figure appointed to a public body Toby Young was appointed to really quite a junior role um, for a brief period of time before he was drummed out, I think grotesquely unfairly, by a, a, a Twitter mob. And the late great Professor Roger Scruton, I think he got appointed to a rather minor position overseeing some government advisory body before he, again, was, was drummed out by a mob. And there was, I think, one centre-right person appointed under the Cameroons to be something on, I think, the Charity Commission. But, but the victories for centre-right administrations when it comes to using their power of patronage are very, very thin on the ground, more noticeable by their failures than their successes. Why are centre-right governments so monumentally useless at putting their people into positions of power? Is it, is it because they don't actually like fellow travellers on the centre-right? Tony Juniper, the leader of the Green Party, for goodness sake, the spokesman for the Green Party, has been appointed by this administration to a key public body why why do centre-right governments do this and what why don't they put their own people into positions of influence do they do they despise them i mean there is actually a little of that certainly if you look at um cameron in power now i mean admittedly he was partly in a coalition but it was very clear that like i say tony blair had brought in this this very dedicated approach of, of putting people who were like-minded to his sort of um third way-ish soft left uh, into all these institutions, all the quangas, um, and, and Gordon Brown had carried that on. And oddly enough, David Cameron carried it on as well, in that he, he very much accepted the sort of Blairite settlement of the sort of people who should be the brightest and the best in taking these things over. Mm -hmm. So there definitely is, is some of that, where they weren't really willing to do it. But I think also there are, there are practical considerations why it's not the, the sort of the, the fix that we hope it might be. Now, no doubt, a good person who thinks differently at the head of the BBC might send a message and really, really be a sort of something that's worth doing. But there aren't enough people. Um, they're going into incredibly hostile environments as we talk about this sort of blob that's very good at, at oh, hold defending it. Hold on, Mark. You say there aren't enough people. I know you, and I can think of four or five dozen people like you who are on the centre right 
who are political in the sense that you're politically aware without being partisan, who are highly capable, highly able to give strategic advice to public bodies. And I, I find it extraordinary, quite extraordinary, that a year into this administration, um, people like you haven't been appointed to some of those key positions. If it, if it was the other way around, if it was the mirror image, if, it was, if you were centre left and this was a Blairite administration, I can guarantee that you would be, and people like you would be, in positions of public, public authority. Um, why is it? I, I go back to this point. Is it because those on the centre-right don't really regard fellow people on the centre-right as allies, but rather as rivals? I mean, th there may well be some of that. I mean, there is also, though, the fact that people don't actually want to do it. I mean, Mark Wallace has been for a number of years trying through Conservative Home to let people on the centre-right uh, know about public appointments when they come up and try and get them to apply. And a big reason, and this has been studied, why there aren't uh, more people who think this way in these uh, quangos these days is partly simply because they just don't apply for the jobs. And that's partly an ideological thing. You know, we don't necessarily think that we want to spend all of our time telling people what to do and being part of some bureaucratic, uh, you know, committee for public health or, or, or whatever it is. We just, we just don't think that's a fun way or a productive way uh, to spend our time. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that's a real consideration. If you're on the, the centre-left, you, you rather like the idea of, um, you know, having power over peer, people and being a sort of bright person who tells, you know, the, the foolish masses um, how they should behave. Uh, yeah, so there is this sort of temperamental difference there. Yeah. Free marketeers tend not to be attracted to joining technocratic nanny state institutions. Yeah, no, I, I, I take it Indeed. What do you think we can do about it? Looking at where we are now, we have a conservative government with a clear majority in parliament. We have a prime minister who has the theoretical power of patronage, although there's not much evidence that that's yet been effectively used. What, what should we do? I think one thing we should do is accept that effectively we have lost this culture war, that we are in a, a position of a sort of defeated side, that there isn't this equality that, that one might think, oh, this is just a game and we're both sides playing on a sort of equal uh, playing field. You know, we don't have control of any of these institutions now. Now, admittedly, the left can't win politically and that, that's important. Uh, but equally, we, we just are not in control of any of these institutions. And if you start, yeah, I, I think there are two different timescales uh, that are worth thinking on. One thing we need, and this is quite a serious and, and long-term task, a really generational task, is that you need uh, people at the very highest levels, uh, very clever people, to, to work on new ideas and fresh ways of thinking about our approaches to the world. The, the sort of free market revolution that then became the, the Thatcher and Reagan administrations took about 50 years of people uh, working on those ideas, and these were Nobel Prize winning um, people like Hayek. We need our Friedman. New, new generation of Friedmans, yeah. Yes, exactly. You really do need that to take control of these elite networks of power um, and present them with, they might be the same ideas, but dressed in new intellectual clothes. And that, of course, is what has happened with these leftist ideas that have, have taken root. They weren't just old-fashioned ones, they were fresh ones. You know, Gramsci and, and Marcuse and people repackaging um, the, the old ideas of, of Marx. Uh, so you, you do need that, um, and that's a, that's a very challenging task. 
is very important, it's very slow. In the meantime, I think it's important, not just that we have these parallel institutions where we have our own conversations and can keep ourselves sane and spread different arguments, but also have people who can be um, public insurgents. And that can be uh, celebrities. It can be an easy thing for people to sneer at, but celebrities really matter in these, in these popular debates that are about explaining in public to people that it's acceptable to think in a certain way and break these hegemonies, these, these sort of monolithic ways of, of thinking. So when someone like Lawrence Fox does actually stand up in public and say commonsensical things that have become outrageous because no one otherwise says them. That, that's actually very, very powerful. I have a lot of admiration for, for Lawrence. I think he's a, he's a very brave man. I've played tennis against him. Um, and um, oh. he's, a, he's a very good tennis player as well. But I, I think some of what, some of the, the risk, the personal risk that he's taken to his career um, and the abuse he's exposed himself to, I, I think he's a, a, a truly brave individual. And um, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of, lot of things he says that are, are, are very worth listening to and, and standing, standing alongside. Um, about 15, 20 years ago, I, I had stood as the Conservative parliamentary candidate in a seat in County Durham in the north of England. And it had quite a profound impact on me because although I, I came second, I, I'm bound to come second, I was standing against Tony Blair at the height of his, his, his fame and fortune. Um, I was very struck by the number of people that I would meet in Sedgefield who had strong blue collar, small C conservative values, particularly on things like crime and education, but who would vote left because that's what they had already done. And I, I, long before people ever talked about a red wall or a blue wall, I had started to ponder with other conservatives like Daniel Hannan and, and others, what we might do about, about what I saw as a, a, a a, a tactical advantage that the left had where they had this reservoir of blue collar support to promote fundamentally elitist out of touch uh, what you might today call woke ideas and I, I, I came up with a, a response called direct democracy and this is the idea that we should subject the British institutions that have been captured by the left to democratic accountability so we started to advocate for example for directly elected police and crime commissioners we started to advocate for a referendum to recalibrate British foreign policy towards Europe back towards where most people wanted it. I, I wonder if, if that's enough. I, I think that maybe we need to go beyond simply direct democracy and direct democratic accountability over institutions. Universities are able to use taxpayer-backed loans to expand without any necessary, any academic merit. There's a bubble there. There's a huge bubble in the higher education sector. Should we not prepare for that bubble to burst? Yes, I think there's a lot in that. I mean, first of all, on, on direct democracy, I think I, I, I enjoyed those, those uh, books that you wrote on the subject. And the plan was a, it was a seminal book and everyone should still reread. It's very good on the problems of expert power, uh, apart from anything else. Um, and one of the problems with fighting a culture war like this is it's, it's fighting against relentless politicization. And just because the left has seized all the institutions and made them leftist doesn't mean you want to seize them all and make them rightist. Because part of what happens when institutions become politicized is they become crap at the things they're supposed to be doing. Now to turn to universities, I think that has happened, particularly in the, in the sort of third tier, some of the, the, the lower quality universities, is, again, is returning to Blair, Blair's massive expansion of university 
attendance was was very uh, dangerous, partly because it's the university educated were always, always historically, the revolutionaries, mm. and particularly with the, the sort of lower academic tier when you're not dealing with, with, with you know, the, the top minds, they're, they're more just easily diverted from the, the, the things they're studying to more political um, causes. And that's exactly what we've seen. There's been, and this isn't just in Britain, this is sort of a historical shift, which uh, has been studied academically, actually by Thomas Piketty. Um, the sort of rise of the Brahmin left where the university educated shifted really quite significantly in the last 20, 30 years um, to the left. And that, that has been a real problem. And, and one answer to that, but again, it's a sort of slow unpicking of something that's since Blair um, been allowed to happen would be um, to shrink the, the university sector. But I look at a number of institutions, higher education institutions, universities, and a lot of them seem to have a structure that almost entrenches group think once you have um tenure as an academic you're, you're virtually unsackable you've got a guaranteed flow of revenue into your institutions which you can then squander on paying for vice chancellors at you know in some cases nearly half a million pounds a year and so long as you stay within that safe woke comfort zone and so long as your social science output reflects the bland output of social science departments across the country, you, 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 you're on to a winner. So I, 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 I do think that actually, you know, those on the centre-right need to recognise that, you know, the current status of universities is, is not long-term sustainable. And we certainly shouldn't use taxpayer money to bail it out when the bubble goes pop. Um, what about the BBC? What should we do with the BBC? I, I think it's pretty clear that um, the one step that should be taken almost immediately is to uh, decriminalise non-payment of the licence fee. And I think it's again, it's telling that the, the government makes noises about this and then continually backs away from it. Oliver Dowden, I think, was out recently saying, oh, yes, but, you know, we can't we can't be, you know, encouraging people not to pay uh, the licence fee. Uh, that That's a very important step. It would it would send a very clear message. It's also, you know, it's, um, it's something that really does affect the poorest in society the most. They're the ones who are being dragged through the courts over this uh, sort of very old fashioned um, TV tax um, and um, clogging up the courts as well, which is a real problem at the moment. So I think this is a very positive thing to do um, for, for some of the most vulnerable parts of society. And, and a sort of, again, it's about statements in public and saying to people that this annoying institution for lots of people that really disagrees with your values, that tries to indoctrinate you all the time, um, actually isn't the, the holding the whip hand and we can do some things uh, about it. Uh, so I, that's what I would like to see straight away. I mean, like, like you, I worry about the tactical and strategic nous of those on the centre-right who hold ministerial office and being able to actually effect change over these institutions. Often what tends to happen is once Tories are in office, they then tend to see those institutions as, you know, they, they tend to indulge those who run those institutions and they pull their punches. But I suspect that with the BBC, technology is going to be the real thing that brings about change. And you know, whether or not we see continuity Cameroon in, in, in the Department of um, Culture, Media and Sport or not, actually technology means that people are just abandoning the, 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 the BBC model. So I, I, think there's real, I think there's real hope there. What about big tech? I'm very concerned at watching the US presidential election, how both Democrats and Republicans seem to, perhaps with some um, 
justification to think that big tech is is filtering what it is that they're able to share with fellow travelers um, what, what should we do about big tech should we worry about it or should we just allow competition between different social media platforms to to, to decide um, the way forward I, I think there are real concerns there um, we, we know certainly that a lot of the people at least uh, the the more junior levels the ones who are actually sort of in control of the uh, some of some of the, the sort of um, the control panels inside these these large institutions at Google, at Twitter, at Facebook, are quite radical. Um, are are just sort of in line with these fashionable ideas that are endemic in the universities in America, even more perhaps than here. Um, so those people, you know, do have an agenda, and to the extent that they can, they'll they'll switch things. And we see in the U.S., um, you know, news stories that if they were the other way around about about Joe Biden and possible. Uh, corruption by his son with China and Russia, you know, if that was the other way around, it would be leading the New York Times, it would be leading all the newspapers, and it's in one newspaper, and then uh, Twitter is, and Facebook are effectively banning the link from being shared. I mean, this is potentially affecting uh, an election, it's very serious, but I don't see very easily what you do about it, because these are, these are sort of natural monopolies, they, they rely on network effects, it's not, you can't just build an alternative uh, Twitter, uh, so it may be that there's some way of regulating them as if they were public utilities, but, but it, it strikes me as very, very hard um, to actually come up with a good solution. I don't, I don't have a good answer, but it, it worries me. I, I, I look at Facebook and I notice that the people who run Facebook get advice, public affairs advice from the failed former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, Nick Clegg. And I, I think to myself, my goodness, I wonder what third rate drivel they're being given as advice from him. I look at all the social media platforms and the social media giants that there have been over the past 20 years, which no longer really exist. Yahoo kind of exists. Alta Vista, the search engine, I don't think exists. Um, I think there was an, a, a, a social media platform called MySpace, wasn't there? I'm not sure if that's still going. I, I suspect that actually Twitter and, and other social media platforms are a lot more vulnerable than, than, than they think. I suspect that um, you know um, Nick Clegg's em employers, um, you know, rather like um, um, when he teamed up with David Cameron, um, he, he may have seemed impregnable, but actually, um, they, he, he may he may find himself knocked off his perch sooner rather than later. Um, what about the police? We tend to, in this country, think of the police, the the rosas, the coppers, as being common sense, down to earth. And I know that a lot of ordinary police officers are pretty much like the communities they, 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 they police. They have the same outlooks as, as ordinary people. But something's gone wrong with the upper echelons of the police, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think no question. I think the police, I, it's, it's something that's been worrying me sort of at the back of my mind, again, since, since the Blairite days. I think in some ways he started to really change the relationship of the police to the people where they were starting to become more something that belonged to the state rather than something that belonged to the people which is really what the police is supposed to be it's a, it's a civil force they're us they're not they're not them as it were uh, and 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 but then in recent years and i think very clear during the pandemic that they really have become um taken over with all sorts of um odd ideas about what their job should be and again what i was talking about institutions that take up jobs that are you know easier than the jobs they're supposed to be doing instead of 
going after burglaries and murders or whatever, they're, they're policing uh, tweets because it's much easier to do that and, and makes them feel more in touch with the, these fashionable ideas. One of the reasons why I advocated directly elected police and crime commissioners was in order to ensure that those who set the priorities of their local police uh, were on the side of the public, to, to mm. if, if you like, force the chief constables in every part of the country to think of policing in terms of what the local population wanted. And the really big disappointment I found during this pandemic in terms of policing is, is how invisible and ineffective, and in some cases monumentally useless, some of the elected police and crime commissioners have been. None of them has really risen to prominence and said, hang on a second, the police shouldn't be telling people not to sunbathe on park benches. The police should not be going after people for sending out tweets that are boorish. Um, these are the priorities of the local police. Um, they, they just seem to have drifted along with it. So you know, I, I, as, as one of the architects of that reform, I'm, I'm, I'm rather disappointed. Maybe, maybe it's just a question of time. Maybe, maybe we need um, you know, a number of these um, rather ineffective police and crime commissioners to be voted out of office in a few months' time. Maybe that might change things. I don't know. That, that might change things. It might help. I mean, something I talk about in my book is, is the idea of managerialism, which is sort of a, a universal theory of, of, of of how to think about running organizations that isn't very rooted in in the sort of professional ethos of particular organizations and it goes along with this creation of a sort of uh, a class of people who like to run things and who look at each other and, and I think maybe part of the problem in the police and in other institutions is that they're, they're not looking at the job in front of them they're looking to their peers in this giant blobbish managerial class across the whole top of society and are interested in making sure that all their peers and the people they go to dinner parties with and that they hang out with, that they're in line with everyone else there. And that, that's a real problem. I, I think you use the phrase Brahmin class, and I think that's a really useful term to talk about these people. Uh, of course, in traditional um, Hindu society in India in the Middle Ages, the Brahmins were the, the sort of the privileged elite at the very top. And, and the reason why I think it's going to be such an effective um, term description of, of, of what we have is precisely because intersectionalism is all about organizing society on the basis of, of hierarchy. So, you know, if, if the intersections left really want to go down this route, describing those at the apex of it, those who benefit from intersectionism, which is in effect um, what this Brahmin class does, um, I, I, I think it's going to be a, a very effective way of, of, of describing what we're up against. Now, you are the first person that I know who's written a book that presents an overall picture of the strategic problem the free market, classical, liberal, centre-right faces in this country, and who's done a, 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 a thorough diagnosis of the problem and, and come up with remedies and solutions. It's, a very, it's free to download on Kindle, I should say, and I, I would urge anyone, anyone watching to, 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 to read it. It's a really... A really powerful read. Have you had any interest from any of those at the centre in Westminster? Have, have people in government shown any interest in these ideas? Um, not too much. I believe it's been, it's been sent out, so I think people, people may be reading it um, behind the scenes. And you, you see the odd mention of something that makes you think uh, that someone's read it. I think Lawrence Fox has, has clearly read it. Um, I think he says as much on, 
on Twitter, which was nice. Um, one of the Red Wall MPs, um, Ben Bradley, I think, um, said how much he enjoyed it, which was nice. He's Interestingly, uh, elsewhere in the world, um, in Eastern Europe, where they know a thing or two about, about communist uh, subversion, uh, it's been quite popular. It's being translated into Slovenian at the moment. And um, I, I believe it's been read at, at, at senior levels in a couple of, of Eastern European countries. Mark, don't lose heart, because the one thing I learnt about the Tory party and politics and new ideas is to start off with when they're faced with a new idea, they'll tell you it's mad, it's crazy. Then they'll say to you eventually, it's a good idea, but it wouldn't work anyway. And then before you know it, they'll be telling you it was their idea all along. I think a time will come relatively quickly when you will have the privilege of listening to conservative MPs and ministers explaining your ideas back at you. And, and when that happens, you know that you've, you've won. And once you've won the argument on the centre-right, then I think we've got a real chance of actually starting to join the battle and, and, and win the, 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 the bigger campaign. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to come on. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you. Um, and uh, keep up the good work. It's really inspiring stuff. Thanks. Th thanks, Douglas. It's uh, been great talking with you.